Ninth Story Studios, giving story a voice. You're listening to the Wicked Library. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to episode 1009 of the Wicked Library. I'm Daniel Foytek, and I thank you for listening. A big thank you to those who took the time to rate us five stars and write a short review for us on iTunes. Your ratings do help others find the show, and of course, we love hearing from you. The librarian told me that if you haven't yet picked up our first written anthology, 13 Wicked Tales, available on Amazon in print and Kindle, he thinks you're very wicked, and not in a good way. To become Wicked in a good way, you can grab your copy at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. It's packed with great tales by some of your favorite authors from the show, including today's author, Kelly Perkins. The book also features beautiful cover art and illustrations by Jeanette Andromeda. It's a fantastic collection, and we know you'll want a copy for your own Wicked Library. Again, get yours now at thewickedlibrary.com forward slash read. As always, before we get started today, a big thank you to those of you who are supporting the show. Without you, this show would not be possible. On behalf of our authors and everyone else involved in making the show, a sincere thank you for your support of this show and of independent horror fiction. If you're not yet supporting the show, you can do that at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. Today's episode features a dark fantasy tale by multiple time TWL alum, Kelly Perkins, who wrote today's story, Arbor Day, just for the Wicked Library. The story is set in the same world as her novel, This Mortal Coil. Today's storyteller is the very talented Mary Murphy, accompanied by a custom score written by a resident composer, Nico Viteze, of We Talk of Dreams. Please, if you enjoy the story, find Kelly's work and buy it. It keeps her making more. Specifically, if you like today's story, Kelly's novel, This Mortal Coil, continues where this tale leaves off. Kelly describes the novel as a self-aware dark fantasy with equal parts humor and fantasy. It's available now for purchase on Amazon.com. You can, of course, learn more about Kelly and find links to her other work on her bio page at thewickedlibrary.com. Now, let's get wicked. Ah, so you've come in search of a story, have you? Well, you've come to the right place. My private collection of dark tomes are hungry for your fear, filled with stories that are sure to terrify, disturb, and delight. Be warned, though, these tales are not for sensitive listeners. You're going to hear things that will upset and quite possibly offend. Ah, here's a good one. Follow me now and we'll enjoy this tale together. It's story time at the Wicked Library. <laughs> In Oru's primordial soup, elementals rode the winds of their own chaos sailed seas of fiery magma before cooling in Ur's oceans where the lands formed in which we'd sink our roots. 
sprouted from seeds nurtured by the father in the dark, rich soil of the mother's womb. We were all her children, from the first gods to the fae. Hard to tell where the ill-begotten bastards that our mortals came from, but come they did. Maybe it was the animals that furnished our forest with birdsong and the howl of beast. Their ever-intricate web of interconnectedness building upon itself until, inevitably, something resembling us, our hierarchy, stood on top. All I knew was my forest, how my fingers spread in the bounty of fruited delight, and the stories told by the gentle murmur of my fellow's leaves when the wind caressed them. That was until my tranquility was broken by a new breeze, by the mother's whispers through my crown of leaves. In the world at once, familiar and new, the grass was crisp under my feet, my fellows tall and imposing, not small and meek like me. Still, I stood sturdy on my newfound feet, although I didn't wander far before I found trouble. Just a glimpse of the wolf bristling its coal-gray fur, but it was enough to grip me in a feeling I didn't wholly understand, only that it forced me to cower behind a tall fat oak as the creature passed. I clutched at the parcel I was charged to protect. Two more joined it, one on either side, nostrils flaring as they sniffed the air. Lucky for me, they had little interest in vegetation and moved on. Before Dyer's benevolent ball of light touched its zenith, I reached the edge of my forest, forever green, beyond the last copse of tranquil birch. Patches of dry grass crackled under my little brown feet. My taller fellows reached with naked fingers to a sky pale with clouds. The canopy was quiet, the leaf litter unbroken. Twigs didn't break for phantoms, I thought and this scared me more than even the wolf. Twigs did break, snapping softly in the distance, their harbinger of voice soaring between the trunks of my brethren. The voice was soft, and its echo muted. I stood still as the oak and listened, a small figure emerging, all chestnut curls, and bundled in thick woolen fabric. Concealment had barely crossed my mind, when I found myself cast into the pools of his bright blue eyes. The child giggled and called to me in a mortal tongue I did not immediately recognize, but it didn't take a mystic to realize he was saying hello. He was mere steps away when he was snatched away by his suspenders. No, barked his captor through a thick, navel-grazing beard as gray as a wolf's coat. He was similarly bundled, and had the same striking blue eyes, which met mine for only half a moment before quickly darting away. He spoke of danger and respect, an acknowledging but wary nod on the tip of his hat brim as he turned away, the boy still dangling from one large gloved hand. Remember what the mother told you, I told myself. Some might call you dryad or nymph. Some might call you monster or abomination, but there are others who will lie down at your feet, offer their tears to the earth beneath them in humble tribute. I thought what a dreadful creature I must be to strike such fear and reverence in the human heart. Unable to stave off curiosity 
I decided to acquaint myself with my reflection in the first stream I came upon. I was disappointed. In my mind's eye, I had fashioned myself a fearsome creature with branch-broad antlers and a vulpine snout, but rippling back at me from the water was something not unlike the child. I was pleased at the headful of leaves that crowned me, at the firefly glow that danced fierce and yellow in my otherwise hollow eyes, but there was something comely about my face. I dipped my all-too-perfect branches in the cool water, sending my reflection rippling until it was truly unrecognizable. How delicate my little fingers appeared, so uniform in shape, not like the broad, strong branches on my brothers and sisters. Even in all the uniformity and precision of the bees' honeycombs, nature was rarely so tidy. Such was clear in any detail I stopped to collect, delaying my already long journey, that much more in my wonder at everything from the veins in a leaf to the droplet of water that magnified even tinier intricacies in the fibers weaving. I could feel it, how all things mirrored the other, from the circulatory systems in animals and plants, to the cracks and rocks, to the electricity conducted between cloud and ground. They all mimicked each other in their chaotic shapes, yet I stood as an anomaly. Evening gave a pink hue to my world, before I was ready, drawing the curtain of night overhead. I happened upon a spot where the canopy opened on the blue-black vastness of it, strung between distant and unaccountable fires burning an unfathomable distance from where I stood, from Oru. It was dizzying. The burden weighing on me sank in with its full weight then, leaving me scrambling in the brittle grass. Of all the beings to act as her agent, the mother had chosen me. I was overcome by disorientation, fighting the feeling that I might fall up. Visions of my fellow's naked limbs scrambling for purchase while I spun forever into that glistening void, scattering my mind. That, of course, didn't happen. I felt a fool lying there, panting. Of all the beings to act as her agent, the mother chose me. I lay in the dead and dying grass, and twirled a discarded leaf in my fingers, breathing in its sweet decay. These forests weren't like the one I protected, or, should I say, that protected me, remote and bordered by a barrier that would turn mortals away with nothing more than an innate sense of dread. That is, were they not to meet a child of the mother before reaching it? Nocturne had her eye on me, fat and yellow where it peeked through the meager remnants of the canopy. I took some odd comfort in this and closed my own. I drowsed and dreamt of Moa. Moa said to glimmer in dewy whites and lavenders so soothing, many a weary traveler sought it out as sweet anodyne for the soul, the place able to solve upon sight. This, of course, had to happen from a distance. Moa was sacred ground, as forbidden to mortals as my forest, just not as invisible. These tales I recalled being told to me as a mere seed in the dark of the mother's womb. It was where I was charged with delivering the parcel, and I ached to reach its mythical borders. Rain dotted my crown of leaves before the sun was warm on my face. I felt 
content. Although as the cloud cover grew, so did my suspicion that eyes other than those of distant gods regarded me, and from not so far away. The longer I lay there with the intermittent kiss of rain along my trunk, the more uneasy I became. The clouds choking out any glimpse of Nocturne's gaze did not help matters. Up and on my feet, I was acutely aware of every little sound, every minute crunch or crinkle in the brush. And then I created my own. No path but forward. The rain pattered to a stop, and the sky opened, the twilight expanse above, leaving me a little envious of the sylphs who sailed it. Could I even imagine what beings might drift among the clouds? Shuffling in the dirt and spreading my toes like roots was fine, but the rain had been a tease, and I longed for something more. Even in forest without much magic, Surely the air stirred in the wake of elementals and playful fay, the warm embrace of one such watery fellow most welcome should I find one. I listened for her song on the breeze. I'd follow the music until I reached the steamy little alcove that housed a natural spring, a promising pool in which to dip my toes. Would I be welcome to? My problem wasn't whether to approach, but how I might be received. Were all Fae privy to the purpose of my pilgrimage? Or were the mother's children separated by more than function? Perhaps more important was the risk I might split and crack straight out of a spring such as that, into the chill of the surrounding air. But the rain had not satisfied my thirst, and I was so very far from familiar soil now. So follow her song I did, the babble and the flow, until I reached a rippling mirror of the diamond-dusted dark. From the promise of water rose a font of it, spilling down skin of light blue with the sheen of fish scales. The flow extended into ripples around her hips, which remained submerged, or perhaps part of the water she embodied as well as inhabited. Her eyes shimmered white in the moonlight, her hand extended palm up, I accepted her gesture of warmth, feeling it enfold my being as I allowed my new companion to guide me into the spring. It was so tempting to follow the naiad beneath the water's glimmering surface, to slip fully into the warm embrace of my watery sisters and drink it in. The naiad's touch was effervescent, intimate. I wondered how many mortals fell for such a seduction, and how many survived it. Still. I let her soak me in her caress, deeper still I sank, to my breast, along which I felt the flit of her touch, the tease of her watery tendrils between my thighs, filling me in a way I would never know upon the green grasses of the mother's making. But the sensation of eyes on me never waned. I felt my ears twitch, like those of a deer aware of the hunter's glare. I was being hunted, not in the way mortal man stalked his prey, although not so different. Did he not wish to nibble upon my leaves, to partake of my bounty? A shiver slid over me in the dark, though not the one I desired, breaking on me like the waves of the oceans I would never know. I lifted myself unto the bank, 
felt her fleeting pull on one ankle before she surrendered me to the shore of her snare. I felt safer in the warm glow of Dyer's benevolent light, but then I figure few were inclined to feel as close to she who drew the dark curtain overhead, stealing away her sister's light except by those pinholes through which the stars shone. It was at night the darker spirits roamed, their aims unsavory and company of ill repute. That did not save me the stare of my pursuer, or the rank smell of overly ripe and fermented fruit on the air. I dropped my guard as the breeze did the smell. Folly, as I entered a particularly gloomy part of the forest, I ignored the ache in my limbs, the fatigue the lack of sun caused me, and listened instead to the tale the surrounding forest had to tell. But it was not the distant clop of hooves I expected that struck my twitching doe ears. It sounded like a suffering animal, but like no deer or rabbit I'd encountered. In fact, if I had to judge by footfalls alone, I would have wagered the creature was about my size and walked on two legs as well. But it was not walking, and neither were the heavier figures in pursuit. There was a shriek, and oof, the sound of bodies crashing into the brush and more whimpering. Something in the back of my mind told me to stay still, to hide, to run. But something else tugged at my chest, lodged a hearty lump in my throat. I followed the pull. Voices, two to three distinctly lower than the first, conversed in a language at first foreign to me, the words not yet decoded until my gaze settled on the source of all that sound. They were human, at a guess, going by ear shape alone. Two of them had a young lady by the arms. I could just make out the point of an elfin ear when one of the boys yanked on her yellow hair to keep her still. The third stood at her feet, unfastening the belt around his waist. He was talking to her, and she was crying, knifier this, and knifier that. It wasn't until her emerald eyes flashed wide on me behind them that they realized their crime had been discovered. What's this then? Their ringleader turned, belt still dangling from the loops in his trousers. He clearly did not regard me with the same respect the hunter had wished to instill in his boy. His dark hair shaded his eyes, but not his intentions. Aww, did the knifeier summon a forest spirit? Should have known you were a magic user too. He spat over his shoulder. Hey, sweetheart, how about it? You want to ride the serpent? I got a big one for you. He jerked up on his lower garments a couple times, the fabric outlining the grotesque bulge they housed. At first, I was sure it was the father's doing, the way time seemed to dilate the mother's, the way the red-hot anger blazed deep within me, hotter than any fire sparked by lightning's bolt, especially when the boy cupped a more than curious hand around the albeit woody curve of my breast. In the reflection of his widening eyes, mine flashed bright green. With that, his hand flopped to his side. His filthy mouth opened in a silent O, the bloody tip of a root lolling as a great, gory tongue. The next few moments were frantic, the air filling with fresh screams, those of the girl muffled by the body of one of her captors as he slumped over her. The other was snared and speared where he stood, 
barely one step into a run. The girl went on screaming. The power of her voice translated to her limbs as she pushed the fallen boy from her, cheeks and button nose rouged by the vermilion spray of blood. The emerald orbs that had moments before regarded me with the faintest hint of hope, widened with new fear. She could not flee fast enough, leaving her heavy cloak in her haste. It remained on the ground, along with the impression of her body, except where the fabric pulled taut beneath one corpse, still twitching. I rolled him from it, snapping it in the air. If only I hadn't lost my own pursuer, satyr or fawn, they were much better trackers, even when as inebriated as they smelled. I followed the path of broken branches and scraps of torn fabric. Even if I couldn't tell exactly where the girl was headed, I knew where she had been. I did this until the trees thinned out on a vast clearing lined with tall timber walls, the tops of which were pointed like spikes. I felt all the air empty out of me, my jaw go slack at what lay past the gate. It was just wood, 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 the scent of it burning, cut apart and nailed together in the shapes of domiciles, fences, even flower boxes. So many of my brethren broken, I gave voice to their silent screams. Oh, merciful mother, I thought I'd never stop screaming. Tears coated my cheeks, sugary on my tongue as my body crashed back through the trees of its own will. My fellows reached for me, their fingers cracked against the force of my retreat. I ran until my limbs simply gave out beneath me. It wasn't until I was splayed across the cool, gray earth that I realized I was still clutching the cloak. My new body may not have been inclined to feel a chill, but I shrugged it on all the same. I pulled myself to my feet, though I felt lost, in a fog, even when the ground sprouted green where I had lain, senses flooded by the scents of mint and clover. I walked a while, my head hung heavy with thought, drooping like a willow. How could the mother, our mother, approve of these beings that occupied her world? that killed her children and cut them up and used their remains for lodging, that treated each other the way those boys had treated that poor elven girl, and then me, a child of the mother, when I stepped in to intervene. None of it made any sense. There was a sense of security in the confines of my borrowed cloak, even with the coppery smell of the blood that would never quite wash clean. Perhaps if others who came upon me marked it against the dark cloth, they might make haste in the opposite direction. One might ponder why I continued at all, except for the hope to reach Moa and maybe address the mother directly once I arrived. Either way, I'd be a less conspicuous fellow traveler, if only by a little. And if I'd braved the main roads instead of the forest to which I was accustomed, I might have blended in as such. But I felt those eyes again, burning holes in my blood-stained cloak, smoldering still, even as I drew it around me at night. In the deep shadows of the thickest boughs, they singed me. When the sun was warm on my face again, I lifted myself from the forest floor to discover a bed of flowers had blossomed beneath me, their springy tendrils reaching for me where I stood. I was leaving a trail, 
one easily marked by man or beast, but one at least in part the purpose of such a long pilgrimage to spread growth, return life to a world perishing in Airless's wintry grass. It was difficult to disguise the clop of hooves in the rockier parts of the forest, so I stuck to these, sacrificing the comfort of soil between my toes on the altar of safety, a funny word so far from that of my forest. Clop, 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 his hooves sounded, echoing amongst the trees. I shivered, as did my leaves. I bade them to be quiet, for my mind to quiet. The swish of his tail whipping through dead leaves did little to aid that, but it provided me one important detail, confirmed for me my fear. This was no playful fawn pursuing me. It was a satyr. A satyr changed the landscape of things a bit. There would be no coy preening or gentle rebuff. He would do to me what those boys had meant to do to that girl, maybe before I had the chance to look him in the eye. Whirling inside me was a cyclone of rage, building and building until all of Oru was sure to know my fury. The trees would tell it on the wind. The leaves would bury it across the waters to tell my tale. No satyr, sprite, or nymph would dare cross me after today. At most help the mortal who did not receive the message. I could smell him now, his breath, sickly sweet with the reek of wine, could picture the matting of his fur by his musk. I could not have this thing fumbling around on top of me. I would not. He had to have been wondering how he got within grabbing distance without me turning around without the hollow sockets of firefly eyes flung open wide at him, the hawk shriek of my screams, my last futile defense as he ravished me. Not today. Not ever. I turned to him in one smooth movement, my sudden shift of direction forcing him back a step. I stared straight into his oddly oriented horizontal pupils and stuck out my chin, he dared grin, his horse teeth purple with wine stains, bits of greenery rotting in his tangled beard. That was it. That was all I registered before I became more anger than being. In a flurry of lashing vines and a shower of dirt, I snared the satyr by his arms and his hairy equine legs. I silenced his protest by wrapping a vine around his thick neck and squeezed until his eyes bulged and those curses became pleas for mercy. I would give him all the mercy I had been shown. His tail thrashed through the dirt as I lifted him, suspending him several feet from the ground. I tasted those sugary tears once more. It might as well have been blood on my tongue his sour on my lips as his limbs separated from him. The hot rush of it arced across my face as his head did from his body, leaving a gory trail where it rolled to a grit-caked stop, facing away from me. There was another side to this, outburst of mine, a sort of sucking void where the anger emptied out of me. Fool that I was, I thought I would feel better. I was an instrument of the gods of balance, had not some been struck? I couldn't look anymore. I had to turn away. If I couldn't see it, had it happened at all? Any of it? 
I wandered days without conscious aim, but always in the same direction. Along my path lay a curious little wood brimming with birds and greenery. The home of another nymph? Why had she not been called upon instead of me? Curiosity had not been my undoing yet, so when I heard the strange creaking of a branch, I followed the sound. There was something else, too, rustling, but not of leaves, and there was another organic creak, like that of a vine extended to its limit, and then beyond that. I rounded a thick copse of trees into a less dense one, to find a mess of deep blue fabric swaying from a rope not of nature's design. From the tangle of fabric and hair, the red face of a man shook free, bloodshot eyes focusing on me, the firefly glimmer of mine, no doubt, hard to miss. Say, lass, said the man, would you mind cutting a foolhardy mortal down from a trap of his own devising? One might say my work was done for me. I could disappear and leave the man to hang, and he could think me a mere mirage. The man went on swaying, smiling even in the absence of a response. Serves me right, I suppose, he grunted, continuing to struggle. Being foolhardy as I was. In his struggle, his bearded face continued to redden his eyes to bulge, and a pang of guilt struck me from the pit of my belly. I couldn't leave him like this, even if nature would have otherwise seen it that way. It was not very complicated from up close, the snare, only this fellow had become quite entangled in it, weaving the web of his own assured destruction before long. Seeing no other way out of it, I sheared through the rope holding him aloft with the snap of a vine, and down came mortal, cradle and all. He landed with an oof, still struggling with the tangle of rope. I silenced my screaming mind with the heave of a sigh, threw back my hood, and parked myself beside him to help. Once free, the man sat up, combing leaves from his gingery beard with his fingers. He was a mountain of a man, his shoulders sharp cliffs from which the ropes of his ruddy brown hair descended. He expressed his embarrassment, addressed an assumption I'd never made regarding his magical abilities, and then stretched out his hand. I'm Hugo, he said, offering me his formidable paw. I stared at it until he withdrew it again. <coughs> he laughed. Awkward. I watched him, and he me in turn. It was right about here I understood the meaning of the word. I stood when Hugo did waited while he dusted off his robes. Say, I owe you a great debt, he said. Much longer and, well... He paused to scratch his beard. I don't like to think about how that might have ended. You saved my life. I shrugged. I knew not what else to do. He spoke at length of his low rank in whatever mystical order he belonged to, and my lack of need for such an individual. And it might have ended there, except... Please, he said. Allow me to accompany you on your travels. Give me a chance to repay the kindness of a child of the mother. In the heavy silence hanging between us, birds called and the wind answered, but neither understood the other. I gave another shrug, 
and gathered my cloak tighter. If he followed, he followed. The life of a tree was not a solitary one, but it was not long before I realized I would have preferred my journey to remain so. The campfires he tended no longer upset me, although he did convert to more magic and less wood, if only out of politeness. It was merely an escalation of my inanimate fellow's return to the mother who birthed them, was it not? All part of the cycle whose delicate balance she maintained. I wasn't sure how I felt about his people's other constructs, but he did complain of cold at night and shivered and chafed from the rain. The outer coverings these beings required becoming heavy and sodden encumbrances. They were so weak. What other option did they have? Besides... Providing shelter for others not as well equipped to withstand the elements was not the worst end I could imagine. I could feel his eyes, although his curiosity was more a nibble than a gnaw. He regarded me with the look of wonder, of desire to study and understand. Often he doodled or wrote long strings of text while observing me in a little leather-bound journal. Other times he carried on one-sided conversations detailing his treatises on nature and man, and the nature of man. He said, Do you ever think maybe it's not worth it? Having caught this at the tail end of one such diatribe, I lifted my eyes to his with attention. He waited, breath baited, which he released in a long sigh when I didn't say anything, as if resigned to my silence. Mine, but not his. You surprised me, helping me the way you did, he said and let his eyes drift. He followed this with a long, pensive pause, and then said, Why you don't leave us to the waste of Airless's interminable winter, I'll never know. Merciful mother, what we do to each other, let alone. He heaved another weighty sigh, shaking his head. Sometimes I think we're not worth the hide we skin from your forest friends. He offered me all he had left, by a way of a shrug and another sigh, stoking his fire and shaking his head some more. You would give up on your kind so easily? I said. Just like that? There was a flash of light and heat as Hugo dropped the stick he used to stoke it into the fire. Once the shock wore off, he relaxed and sat his prodigious figure back, leaning on two long arms, his large hands planted behind him in the dirt. No, he said staring into the fire. I suppose not. I lost count of how many exchanges had passed between the Celestial Sisters, since Hugo had unceremoniously, and without express permission, joined me on my journey. Still, I did not mind him so much. That didn't mean I made a habit of talking to him, but I had some questions all the same. What did you mean, interminable winter? I asked him one morning. It is hardly cold enough for frost. Hugo seemed startled by my question, as if it had been my most violent outburst yet. Well, you see, lass, it hasn't gotten very warm either, he said. Is it not up to you to break Airless's hold on the realm? He directed this question less at me and more at the bed of grass I still sat upon. Perhaps, but what business was that of a mortal? Unless, of course, his aim in his order was to become a mystic and commune with the gods. Then it wouldn't just be his business, but his vocation. I found this detail irksome, albeit unproven. Though if pressed, 
I could not say why. His gaze bored into me, scrutinized me right down to the root, accusing me. You really don't know, do you? It said. My eyes did the singeing this time. Problem? But his went soft. His bushy brows tilted upward, with what I could only surmise was concern or sorrow. Shame washed over me, and I withdrew my gaze again, watching the blue flame of his magical fire. He collected himself, the consummate researcher with his unshakable curiosity, shaken enough that he folded his limbs tightly against himself, huddled against a new chill. He did recommend we find a way around the forest we were approaching, the blue forest. Full of all manner of spooks, that one, he said, but I felt heavy. It was getting harder for me to move around, and I didn't know how much longer I could take it, or that I could conceal the parcel beneath my cloak. I could hear the questions, although he dared not voice them. Do you know where you are headed? Do you know why? How do you know the way? Easy, my fellows told me, but that would be a lie, and something told me he knew that. He knew where I was headed, and why, something his order was surely privy to. But why go anywhere? Why not just... I stopped, letting my eyes wander until they landed on Hugo, where he too halted, no doubt due to my sudden speech. Keep me in Moa. His stare lingered a while, and I began to understand his frustration with me when I did so in lieu of answering. You know, don't you? I asked him. You're carrying something, he said. A seed, or... He hesitated, paused to adjust the large leather pack he had slung over one shoulder. Well, it's not the destination, but the journey, right? And he began walking again. He was quiet for a time, but never a long stretch. I never told you what the snare was for, did I? He said after a while. Hugo stopped and fiddled with his pack some more. Somehow the weight he carried seemed heavier now, too. He needn't tell me. The answer was written in his eyes, in the language of shame. He also didn't need to tell me. I much prefer getting to know you this way. But he did, anyway. I had little time to feel warm at heart, as the icy chill of undeath howled through my hollows. The leaves atop my head shuddered in its wake. I had no difficulty running now, outrunning the mortal who outsized me by a great deal. Where his limbs were long, he was also thick of trunk and a bit ungainly, branches breaking like waves on the shore against his barrel chest, and all my nimble glory, bobbing and weaving and ignoring the occasional broken piece of hair spraying sap onto my cheeks and shoulders. The spirits were faster. I glimpsed them during my sprint in bright flashes of cold luminescence on my periphery, but now I saw them clearly ahead of me weaving as ribbons of gossamer back through the trees and coming straight for me. They were coming at such a speed, all I could do was steel myself against the impending attack. I closed my eyes in anticipation of impact and boom! The dissipation of a concussive blast shattered the space in front of me. I opened one eye and then the other. Successive thumps felt against the shimmering barrier erected around me. The tension in my body left 
and I ventured a look behind me. Hugo. He was standing there, knotted scepter raised. Go! He shouted. I nodded and ran, Hugo drifting farther and farther behind until I didn't feel him at all anymore. I heard a massive boom, but I didn't stop until I hit the edge of the forest, turning back one last time. Was he gone? Had I lost him? Should I wait? I agonized for a while longer, but ultimately I had to go. I had just turned and started walking, shoulders slumped, when... Oh, lass, the way they came at you, even after I threw that bubble at them. I really liked that talisman, too. I was so relieved, I propelled myself at Hugo and threw my arms as far as they would reach around his mammoth frame. He hesitated at first, but then returned the embrace. It's me, isn't it? I asked him, pulling away with the sugary taste of tears on my tongue. Hugo nodded. You are steeped in the mother's magic, but I think it's more what you carry. Come now, he said. We mustn't waste more time. You're still coming along? I asked him. Hugo stopped and turned, bushy brows pushed tight, like two caterpillars trying to sit up for a hug. If you don't... No! I interrupted. It's not that, just... Your debt is paid. Hugo's face relaxed, and he breathed a laugh through his nose. He said, I doubt man's debt to you could ever be paid in full. Now come on, no way but forward and he was of some help. The potion he gave me sucked the sap back in and returned my crown of leafy twigs back to its uncorrupted state. I gathered actual fireflies to light our way at night, and Hugo sucked down stamina droughts to keep up, in addition to whatever horrible jerky he'd packed to sustain him before his pilgrimage joined mine. Standing ahead of a dark and skeletal tree line, guarded by a grand stone border, were two tall beings in brilliant gold and green armor with strong fey features, angular faces and high cheeks, both very stern of brow. I had expected conditions to improve the closer we got to Moa, but the further we went, the more it seemed the opposite was true. After all, the Evergrowth, as Hugo had come to call it, didn't have a head start. It followed me. The beings barred our path as we approached, no words necessary where crossing their long spears would suffice. Hugo shuffled through his pack and pockets, growing more frustrated with each fruitless hunt. What are you looking for? I asked him. I should have coin enough for a toll, he told me. Somewhere. No toll, said a surprisingly high voice from one of the armored guards. No mortal may pass. No mortal? I questioned with equal parts incredulity and indignation. Then it dawned on me, even before Hugo could utter in disbelief. This is Moa? I scanned the brabbled and broken place they blocked. Where are the blooms? The hanging wisteria so beautiful that heals the human soul. The fae, whose type I failed to identify despite the brilliant mops of pastel hair, ornamented only by thin gold circlets, shared a look and a laugh. Oh, the nymph has blossomed a sense of humor since she last passed through, said the guard. Perhaps a human taught her, said the other, 
less amused. Although male, judging by his voice, he was no less beautiful or enchanting. Still, I was just as unamused as he. You must have me confused with another, I... By decree of the Fairy King, the male guard interrupted. No mortal may pass beyond this point. He pointed at Hugo, the impressive musculature of his outstretched arm visible beneath the straps of his armor. The Fairy King. The way the black in Hugo's eyes shrank suggested I shouldn't question further. But these fairies were so different from the ones that flitted across my skin that sought solitude in the crooks of my branches back home. But then I was a long way from home now. Their proximity to and similar shape to mortal peoples had in turn shaped them as a people. Well, Hugo said, I suppose this is goodbye. I turned to find the usually boisterous mage, crestfallen. Thank you, he continued, for putting up with me. I'll not forget you. Not easily, that's for sure. I shrugged off my borrowed cloak, revealing a shape a great deal rounder than when I began, and motioned for Hugo to open his hands, where I piled the garment. See that this is returned to its true owner. I don't think I'll need it where I'm going. Hugo assented with a nod and a smile. He stole my retreating hand with a squeeze. When I smiled back, he pulled me into a hug. You've done well, child, he said. You'll do more. Just wait and see. But I couldn't. Not anymore. Hugo and I shared one last smile and nod, somewhere between acknowledgement and reassurance. The fairy guards parted, and I passed into the fog as though through a gate, one that shut tight behind me. All that lay behind me was gone. It was like a curtain lifted the veil between what was and what would be or could be. A distinct sense of being somehow in between, on the verge, the cusp of not one way or another, but always. That same pang that had struck me before hit me now. The icy shards of anticipation and something else, something visceral and physical. It was silent, no birds, no winds, a place so hollow there was no echo when I screamed, as if the air just swallowed it up, the way it had everything that animated this fabled place. How many fairies must mark its borders, allowing no one in while they watched its decay, while they waited gods knew how long for me? And I was alone, again, waiting in a shallow hollow where the fog didn't quite reach, was a statuesque figure of a woman made from shimmering ice. She was as natural as I, a swirl of frosty mist her only garb. Her hair was a crown of crystalline spikes, collected as a singular one atop her head. Her eyes were just as cold, cut diamonds where they shifted at her unspeakably beautiful and terrifying features. To see her filled me with a kind of dread and joy I could liken to nothing in my short experience. Little nymph, echoed a voice at once distant and whispered, as though the speaker's lips were pressed directly to my ear. You are to be my foil. The woman looked me over, her icy features betraying no emotion. Should you choose it? I, I don't understand. The rising pressure inside me made it difficult to prioritize anything above the relief of it, eyes darting in search of any escape that may avail itself to me. The mother sent you here on a task, 
She spoke slowly, as if her meandering cadence was meant to directly mock the growing urgency in my belly. To deliver a parcel, did she not? A sharp pain sent me to my knees, panting, clutching at old brown binds that refused to bolster me. The woman, airless, I surmised, paced, her pattern a tight circle around me. Right now, you must be in an unimaginable amount of pain. I feel for you. If I thought the goddess of winter a terrifying presence, I liked her less when she smiled. I also know how to make it stop. Please, I pleaded, clutching my midsection. How? Airless peered casually at her fingernails, as if her only goal was to prolong my pain. The mortal was right. This is not your first trip here. She lifted those cold, sharp eyes to me. Or don't you remember? I blinked at her stupidly. Of course it is. I only just... Awakened, yes, this time. I felt the pressure ease a bit and righted myself. That's impossible. I... How did you know, hmm? She resumed pacing. For that matter, how did you know the way? I blinked some more. My eyes gooey, cheeks sticky with sugary tears. She told me. When? Do you really believe it was all outlined for you in the womb? That you dreamed it? And why you? She stopped again, in front of me, and faced me head on. The real question is, how many times have you suffered the indignities of this world? How many times have you seen death? Caused it, felt it, only to be transplanted once more, to start from the beginning again. Another pain seared through me then, stealing all thought, all notion of reason. It stole my legs out from under me, folded them on either side of me with my bottom flat against the ground. Airless knelt close, her whisper like knives in my ears. This forest dies. They all die, if it lives. The crinkle of her forehead when she raised her undefined brows divide her seeming inability to emote. Do you understand? I did. Now, you have a choice. A choice? Now, if I hadn't been in such agony, I might have laughed in her face if it alleviates this pain. <laughs> Oh, no. Airless laughed, humorless and haughty. You'll wish for this pain after an eternity of what I have to offer you. But at least it would be your choice. Please, I said through a sneer as ferocious as any beast could offer. Stop talking in riddles and just say it. My legs left me, twisting into the shapes I'd marveled at before and burrowed root-like into the ground to which my bottom fused. Pay attention, Airless spat. Pain spiked through my cheek via one frostbite slap. A narcotic stupor washed over me, as if I'd fallen in a field of poppies. But I was. I was paying attention, just not to Airless. I was regarding the spark that had ignited the sky, 
the new sprouts of green erupting all over in brilliant pastel blossoms, this tranquil wood's newfound warmth, dampening Airless's gown so that it dripped down her indistinct anatomy. The weight lifted, the pressure eased, and peace followed, it taking the cold snap of icy fingers in my face to rouse me. My eyes were so heavy, it took great effort to open them. When I did, I peered down at Airless from a height comparable to that at which she had towered over me. You can stay here, she said, only to wake up in your forest next year with no memory. Or, if you deem the occupants of this world worthy, those that slay your forest friends for food and sport and build houses from the corpses of your comrades included, you can become their bringer of rebirth and renewal. I fought past the fog in my mind, the incongruent ease threatening to swallow my consciousness. Not yet, I told myself. What do I have to do? Reach down to your roots. You'll see. Consciousness failed me briefly, but for one crucial moment, the one airless was there, the next, just a tepid pool of water. Reach down to my roots. Could she have been more cryptic? Even if an endless round, even if my world was based on a lie, would I not prefer it? My blissful ignorance, even to everything I had learned, all I had gained in this newly green paradise, where songbirds played chase and chirp, and I could just glimpse my truly magnificent branches in the clean, clear water slowly fading to feed my roots. My roots where something was stuck, glowing with the faintest golden light. Or was it a trick of it, a reflection cast from Dyer's benevolent sun? No, I was confident it was something more. If I just... But it was too late. I had solidified in shape except for one tendril, the one that lay over the coil of light. If I just curled it a little, ignored the sound of creaking and tearing... The splintering and the breaking, and then... And then the cracks were spreading everywhere. Those familiar shapes forming along my trunk, like the roots that fed me, that shaped the vast network of my new fingers, like the lightning that felt like it shot from every intricate vein. The bark split apart and fell away, my branches withering. From the dark hollow of my stump, a fresh growth arose, tender and new. The woman staring back at me from the pool now had eyes that mirrored the blue depths of those occupied by the serpentine cousins of the Naiads. Those that guarded Ur's shores, wielding vicious tridents. My skin was a green of new shoots of grass. My hair no longer twigs, but the broad leaves of some flowering plant. From inside me, the gift of life I had traveled so far to allow to germinate delivered me in this holiest of places, baptized by the gown of the goddess of winter herself. Whether the mother willed it or not, I would sit beside her on the dais of Oru's deities, make my mark on the pantheon by marking my first equinox, if only to see the look on her face. And maybe one day, Hugo's.
Hello, kiddies. So, you want access to the Wicked Archives, do you? Well, it takes money to keep the lights on and keep our beasties fed. Trust me, you don't want them hungry. They might just start eating the writers and then where would we be? Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash wickedlibrary and pledge your support to the show. For $2 a month, I'll give you a key to our collection of classic episodes. For $5 a month, I'll let you hear the bonus stories before the rest of our listeners. Even more tantalizing rewards await for those who want to sacrifice more to us. (laughs) Over 70 classic episodes are lurking deep in the private area of the library, just waiting to be heard by you. Pledge yourself to the library today, and you'll be ours forever. You're going to like it here, I think. <laughs> How much is it for people to enjoy the private area of the librarian, Dan? <laughs>